it was plain too much food. I'm not just referring to the abundance of love that the community has poured out on our family over the course of this week. Thank you for that. But actually, the other night, after the funeral, we went out as a family to a restaurant just up the street that had a good-sized party room uh, as extended family and out-of-town guests to uh, have dinner and fellowship together. And we were catching up with extended family and, you know, managing kids and helping them get their orders in and all those good things. And then my food came to the table. I had ordered fajitas because I love fajitas, beef fajitas. And, you know, they came the way that a lot of these Mexican restaurants do on that sizzling griddle of yumminess, right? And it comes to the table sizzling away. And then the waiter says to me, I'll be right back with your other things. And he comes back with a second, like, serving platter size, not just like a bowl, but like a serving platter size bowl with the, the rice and the beans and the guacamole and the lettuce and the tomatoes and all that sort of stuff. And then another waiter was right behind him who comes with a plate of the tortillas. And finally, they give me a, a plate, you know, just like a blank plate to uh, apparently try to, you know, assemble my meal for myself. I felt terrible for, for uh, Sarah's poor cousin who's sitting next to me because her food had not yet come. And this sort of kept overflowing in front of her, you know, and the, the smells wafting up in front of her. It was just too much food. I only ended up eating about half of it and taking the rest home and having it the next day. It cracked me up. Well, that's a bit how I felt this week also coming to the gospel passage that I read to us just now. It's just too much. Too much to take in. Too much to fit on one plate, if you will. This is, of course, a very familiar passage, this little instructional time late at night between Jesus and the Pharisee Nicodemus, who was too fearful to actually come seek Jesus out in the daylight. But the range and depth of this teaching, it's enormous. It's too much to fit on the plate of one sermon. I debated the idea of preaching for about 45 minutes to an hour, you're welcome, Roger. I decided not to. So manage your expectations as we dive into this very familiar passage of John chapter 3, because we're not going to get to all of it. But we will start at the beginning. Start where Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he opens the conversation with this very classic non-Western indirect approach. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Excuse me, I'm sorry, is there a, is there a question in there somewhere? Nicodemus is testing the waters here, see. He knows there's something up with this new rabbi, Jesus. Jesus has already performed several miracles at this point that can only be accounted for, as Nicodemus says, by crediting divine power. But the whole reason that Nicodemus is here at night is that this is far from a settled and universally accepted view among the teachers of Israel. We know elsewhere in the Gospels, some of the teachers, some of Nicodemus' colleagues start accusing Jesus of casting out demons by demons, right? So even though he approaches it with we language, Nicodemus is really there for himself saying, I want to understand for myself what is going on. 
And in a world of indirect communication like the ancient Middle East, here comes Jesus, uncommonly, in all likelihood, uncomfortably direct. Jesus seemingly doesn't even address his non-question. Jesus simply cuts to the heart of the matter. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You're here because you're unsure. You say, we know you come from God, but all the circumstances of this late night cloak and dagger approach demonstrate that idea is in question. So, Jesus says, here's what it comes down to. You can't receive me or my message unless you are born of God. Let's get that out of the way. We can't even have this conversation unless you are born of God. There's no earthly expectation, or sorry, explanation that fits your earthbound expectations that's going to help you here. Now, there's some directness for you. Now, we read Nicodemus' response, how can a man be born when he's old? And then we hear, you know, Jesus' tone of almost incredulity, you know, are you a teacher of Israel? And I think far too often we're all too ready to paint Nicodemus as, well, frankly, a bit thick. But that's a bit unfair to Nicodemus. Remember, he's here. Jesus is considered somewhat questionable in Nicodemus's circle, but he's here seeking to understand for himself. Jesus throws out this challenge, and Nicodemus is still trying to understand. This speaks not to Nicodemus's, uh, you know, as somehow a dull, dull student, slow on the uptake. It speaks rather to the monumental shift in understanding and thinking that this represents away from the conventional religious understandings of the day. See, in the Jewish faith, your lineage, your parentage was everything. Remember, the Israelites were a tribal people. We heard in the Old Testament how God called Abraham out of the nations and said, I will make a nation of you. And from him, came a couple generations later, the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes descending from them. Your family's inheritance, their land, in some cases even their station and occupation was all determined according to your lineage. And then here comes this rabbi who seems for all the world to be doing miraculous, godly works. And he says, in effect, Forget your heritage. You want to understand what God's doing? It's got nothing to do with who your daddy was. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. That is a monumental challenge to the worldview of the Pharisees, to the worldview of Nicodemus. He's not slow. Nicodemus just needs some space to take in what he has just been told. Jesus is teaching him about a recalibrating shift in God's plan. Not a change in God's plan, mind you. Salvation through faith and not through your Jewishness and your adherence to the Jewish law had always been God's plan. As we heard St. Paul point directly to that. Abraham believed God. 
And on that faith, he was credited righteousness. That was always the plan of God. But the Jews, especially the lot that Nicodemus was associated with, had moved so far off the rails of understanding what God was about that it would have felt like nearly a global recalibration of thinking. Jesus is basically urging Nicodemus to let go of his skewed view of the Old Testament law and welcoming him in to understanding life, embracing the gospel of faith. The only way you're going to understand is by submitting to God's intended way, Nicodemus. The only way is to submit to the Jesus way, faith. Not law, not pedigree. Die to your pedigree and effectively be born again. Accepting a heavenly way of thinking rather than being bound to earth-born human understanding. That's what Jesus means when he says, don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And then he uses this analogy. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, a lot of people uh, take that text, that, that, that saying, and they kind of apply it to the Spirit as sort of this, well, the Spirit's unpredictable, right? Uh, kind of go with the, the C.S. Lewis uh, image from the Narnia books, well, he's not a tame lion, right? While that is most certainly true, that's not what Jesus means here. He's demonstrating exactly what he's been trying to impress upon Nicodemus. Nicodemus is bound up in looking for earthly explanations to heavenly problems. He's approaching Jesus' teaching about the Spirit of God and what matters in the life of the kingdom from a very worldly mindset. Do this and that, be born from the right stock, and you'll be fine. So Jesus, probably inspired by the evening winds blowing by as they sit presumably on a rooftop having this conversation points to the wind and makes a little play on words to illustrate his point see in both the hebrew and greek languages the word spirit and the word wind or breath are the same word so jesus talking about the spirit takes a very earthbound phenomenon wind and he says effectively tell me where the wind comes from and of course, in the first century, air convection had never been studied or understood. So he's effectively saying to Nicodemus, explain the wind. Ah, oh, you can't do it. You can't do it, can you? If that's a strictly earthly phenomenon and you can't even supply an earthly explanation to it, how can you possibly expect an earthly explanation for the things of a heavenly kingdom? You have to take it on faith from someone who has seen and understood the kingdom from the inside. Just as we now understand wind and convection and air currents and all these things because experts have studied that and have passed that knowledge on to us. Jesus says, I'm the expert. I'm the one with the knowledge of the kingdom because that's where I came from. You're going to have to listen to me on this one, Nicodemus. Jesus is inviting him once again to place his trust in Jesus as a reliable witness. An invitation to be led by Jesus into the kingdom life that for Nicodemus will mean a kind of rebirth. 
Life born, as Jesus has said, by water and the Spirit. Water and the Spirit. Water points, of course, to baptism. Specifically, baptism as John the baptizer had begun applying it. We know from studying the reaction of the Jews to Jesus' cousin John that the idea that a Jew would need to undergo baptism was scandalous. You see, baptism was a rite already implemented in the life of Israel, but it was a rite for the inclusion of proselytes, for converts to the Jewish faith. Here is Jesus promoting it exactly the way John did, as an act even for native-born Jews to turn in repentance toward God. Effectively, he's saying, being born a Jew is not enough. Don't bank on your parentage. Humbly submit to what God is doing. Be reborn from above, born of repentance and faith and the Spirit. The very same Spirit who hovered over the formless waters at the creation the same Spirit that has spoken to and through God's people in and through His prophets, the Spirit that after His death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus would pour out freely upon all flesh. Even here, Jesus points forward to that work and says it's by baptism and the gift of the Spirit. And by those means only that one can enter the kingdom of God. Now, Very few, if any of us in this room, come to this teaching from the place that Nicodemus was coming. Very few of us could claim a blood lineage tied to the ancient people of God and the ancient work of God. Nevertheless, it is all too common for us as human beings to become dependent upon the wrong things. To identify ourselves with the wrong things. Nicodemus was challenged at a heart level by Jesus to let go of his Pharisaic understandings, commitments and beliefs, and to embrace Jesus and his work only. But that's a challenge that many of us share in as well. Our self-understanding, self-defining may not come from our parentage, as it did for Nicodemus, but the vast majority of men and women if we're honest, might find that we do, in fact, define ourselves and our beliefs and our commitments by something other than Jesus and his work. In our day, there's a strong temptation to define ourselves by the ideologies, even the political commitments that we subscribe to, by the vocations or even the hobbies and interests that we pursue. Some do define themselves by their relationship to family, not quite in the same way that Nicodemus did, but it's a factor nevertheless. So the challenge that Jesus offers up here is still as applicable to us as it was to Nicodemus. Lay aside every other way to measure and define yourself. Humbly submit to the Jesus way. Stop looking for earthly explanations and definitions if you would seek to live a kingdom life. Friends, it's time to ask ourselves what we as individuals or what we as a body of believers, what are we known for? 
What are we defined by? What marks us? If it's anything but the gospel, we have some serious considerations. We have some serious work to do. We too need to walk in the new birth, the new life that our baptism opened up for us. And we need to embrace ever more fully the life of walking with the Spirit. Some of you have heard me share my story before. It was not until in college that I discovered this strange new type of church I had never heard of before, this Anglican church, that I also encountered the third person of God's Holy Trinity for the first time. See, prior to that time, I like to joke that my previous church's understanding of the Trinity was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. We treated the third person of the Godhead, frankly, with suspicion. And up till that point in college, I had understood him as basically a sort of a pre-installed interpretation app in my brain that was given by God to help me read the scriptures. Turns out, leading the people of God into truth and helping us understand the scriptures is only one of the Spirit's jobs, an important one, but only one. He's also been given to bring us conviction where we need it. He actually speaks to apply the words of the scriptures to our hearts where we need it. He brings strength when we need it, comfort when we need it, wisdom. He does speak prophetic words of knowledge. He brings joy, supernatural peace, a capacity to love others beyond what we could simply muster or will ourselves into. He gives all these gifts that are needed for our lives of faith and for the good of Christ's body. And oh, by the way, healing to body, mind, and spirit as well. Healing from the brokenness of our past healing from the patterns we continually find ourselves going to, those ones that we seem powerless to say no to the stuff that continually harms us. Friends, that is what life being born of the Spirit can and should look like. In 1963, pianist and singer John Wimber, a member of the original Righteous Brothers lineup, came to faith in Jesus. And as the story goes, he went to an evangelical church meeting for the very first time after coming to faith on the heels of a major bender. He got himself cleaned up that Sunday morning, went to a local church, and he sat through the service, sang the songs, listened to the readings, listened to the sermon, and then he sat perplexed and dismayed as the sanctuary began to clear out. So he made his way to where the pastor was greeting people at the door and he asked him, but pastor, when do you guys do the stuff? And now it was the pastor's turn to be perplexed. <laughs> Son, what do you mean, do the stuff, All right? See, Wimber, excited by his newfound faith, since the moment of his uh, bedside conversion in a hotel room, had started reading the New Testament. And he had ripped all the way through all four Gospels and had gotten most of the way through the book of Acts by Sunday morning when he went to church for the first time. 
And he was excited to read the book of Acts and learn that even after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the church continued just as he remembered Jesus had promised that they would do the same works and even greater works when he returned to the Father. So he went to church on Sunday morning with expectation. But that understanding didn't seem to square with what he had just experienced in this contemporary Christian church service. These Christians hadn't done any of the stuff that the church in Acts seemed to have done. And so after Wimber explained what he meant from his reading of Scripture, the pastor reportedly told him, oh, son, we don't believe that the Lord does those things in the modern church anymore. And as the story was conveyed to me, Wimber then responded, I gave up drugs for this? That set him on a path to find an expression of the Christian faith that still believed in the Spirit's supernatural activity in and through the church, which led to his involvement in founding the Vineyard Movement, what is now an international Christian denomination, a denomination founded in the belief that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still active and even necessary in the life of the church today denomination founded upon reaching people like Wimber himself, people coming out of very deep brokenness and addiction and seeing them delivered by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, the vineyard does not have the corner on the market on Holy Spirit ministry. St. Paul says that the Spirit is the down payment on our birthright our inheritance as the children of God, the adopted heirs of the kingdom. But if we come to our spiritual lives, if we come to church expecting only earthly things, then that's what we'll get. Don't get me wrong, even seeking to live a very earthbound life by the wisdom of Jesus is worth it. Life is better that way than any other alternatives. But what Jesus desires for us, his people, what he desires for you is that you would come to the life of the kingdom expecting to see kingdom things. Expect his kingdom work in your life to heal, to transform, to enliven and change. And expect his kingdom work as we gather as a church to speak to heal, to transform us as we encounter his life-giving presence. If we are going to embrace the call to move forward in hope, as we've talked about this year and in this season of transitions, if we are going to move forward in hope, it is only through the Spirit's kingdom work that that will be accomplished. So as we end this morning, I want to invite you to join me in prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, move among us, your people. And first, for any who have been walking through life, even trying to walk through a spiritual life, looking for earthly explanations for heavenly things, I want to invite you to open up to the Lord this morning and say, Jesus, I want to submit to your understanding, your good witness your way of doing things. 
any of us who perhaps made that initial step of faith somewhere in our past. Or perhaps we identify that we've still been defining and measuring our lives by something other, something other than how Jesus would measure and define that. I want to make space for you to identify and to confess that to the Lord this morning. Finally, for any who have been suspicious, or cautious, and therefore not open to the fullness of the experience of God's Holy Spirit in your life of faith, I want to invite you to open your hands. You might even want to do that physically as a, as a gesture to the Lord. Open your hands and ask the Lord to immerse you more fully in His Spirit to grant you whatever gift, whatever measure of the Spirit's fullness He desires for you. Lord, this Lent, we would let go of lesser things. Aid us, Lord, as a body to be open to your fullness your gifts, your kingdom present in our midst. Or may we truly be reborn from above as we walk in the waters of our baptism and in the life of your spirit. It's your name, in your name that we pray. Our Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.